Welcome to the National Native Network podcast series. Today we're presenting our webinar archive, Restoring Health Through Sustainable Food Systems. To view the webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Please enjoy our presentation. Hello, my name is Mike Ouellette with the National Native Network, a program of the Inter-Tribal Council of Michigan. Welcome to the NNN webinar series on cancer risk reduction in Indian Country. This webinar is titled, Restoring Health Through Sustainable Food Systems. Your presenters today are Frida Carpenter, Health Promotion and Disease Prevention and Health Education Coordinator at the Oklahoma City IHS Area Office, and Marcia Anderson, MS, RDN, RDN, LN, Health Promotion Manager, Wellness and Prevention at Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. This technical assistance webinar is being hosted by the National Native Network with Indian Health Service Health Promotion and Disease Prevention, which offers technical assistance and resources for commercial tobacco and cancer prevention and control throughout Indian Country. No commercial interest support was used to fund this activity. No, there will be no uh, CEs offered for this presentation. If you live in a low income community and rural location or where grocery stores and supermarkets are hard to come by, then you live in a food desert. Food deserts are in areas where obesity is just one of the many serious health issues. Many American Indians and Alaska Natives have limited or no access to healthy or affordable foods. So their chances of getting diabetes, heart disease, and certain types of cancers are much higher and increasing. Access to healthy and affordable foods is possible no matter where you live. In the webinar, the speakers will share practical strategies to increase sustainable access to healthy foods and some of the health benefits of gardening and harvesting plant foods. At the end of the presentation, participants will be able to identify at least two strategies to increase access to healthy food, define what is a sustainable food supply, discuss health benefits of gardening and harvesting plant foods. And now, if you have any questions, we'll be taking questions in the last 10 minutes of the presentation. If you have any questions, please enter them into the question box on the lower right-hand panel of your screen, and we will answer them uh, at the end of the presentation. Thank you, and now at this time, I'm going to throw it over to Frida Carpitcher.
Good afternoon. Today, we will talk about food deserts and what you can do if you find yourself living in a food desert. Like, I don't see my slides. Yes, the slides are not advancing, Mike. Hey, I know this worked in practice. I don't know what happens. I do apologize. Well, we'll just move on. And talking about the food desert. A food desert is any location more than a mile from where you are to good food. If you're in a town, a city, or a metropolitan area. If you find yourself in a rural area, the food desert circle extends to a five mile radius from good food. Here, oh, did we check? Nope, still no slides, okay. Stand by, I'm The term good that. food, okay. We'll just continue and we'll catch up when we see the slides. The term good food is key to the definition for the food desert. Oh, okay. Part of the term fresh food or good food in its original state is the meaning of the rate, the mileage and the location. There are exceptions where this definition cannot be used in places like Alaska. A mile or five miles doesn't mean a lot in large areas, Montana, Alaska, some of the greater distances to food. Okay. Okay, Mike, I'm clicking the arrow, but the arrows still aren't working. So I'm going to continue with the print. Oh, maybe they are. Uh, my slide was showing a traditional garden, uh, you know, in the ground garden, out in the backyard. Um, and the garden of picture I had was of an 80 year old man, an Oklahoma Seminole elder in his uh, 80s. And um, okay, here we go. This is what we usually think of. When you hear garden, this is what some of us picture in our mind that we normally would see. You see the corn growing, you see the squash growing, you can't really see the beans, but they're crawling up the corn stalks. All right, so this person was able to control their diabetes with only oral medication for more than 25 years using his garden for food and the activities of hoeing his garden, taking out the weeds, turning the water on. He was able to keep his diabetes in check with just oral medication. All right, this is an example of our wellness garden at Clinton, Oklahoma. And if you'll notice, uh, oh, the slide's crooked, but at the bottom of the slide, you can see some wood showing. And that is a piece of the two by 12 wood that was 
nailed together and the green fabric underneath is the weed barrier. This was then filled with topsoil and planted one plant per square foot. The straw that you see covering around the strawberries is used for uh, water retention and is also used against the cold in the spring. This garden belongs to El Reno and it's made of big bag beds, which are manufactured here in Oklahoma City. They're 12 inches deep and various uh, widths across. Um, this is a really small garden built between two staircases going out the back of the building uh, in a hard to mow area. So weed barrier was put down under the bed so we wouldn't have to weed eat or mow. If you hit the bag with the weed eater, it'll make a rip in it and spill out. Um, the rabbit wire that you see in the corner of the slide is to keep the bunnies out because this is a little bit of a rural area. There's not a lot of housing and um, area and they were coming to eat the plants. Most of these plants are pollinators to increase the bee activity of the area. Here's a different in-ground bed. This is at our Pawnee service unit. You'll notice that the tall, we have deer wire and we have a hog wire and we have rabbit wire around this garden. These frames were built in place, filled with dirt and then planted. This is in a very rural area with a lot of wildlife. So it took a lot to protect the plants. Here's our most popular urban garden. This is called a bucket garden. A five gallon bucket will grow one plant because it will give you about a foot and a half of um, dirt. And most plants take one square foot to grow, leaving space for a few marigolds planted around the edge to keep down the bug population. This is one uh, pepper plant that you can see that it's got some bug holes in it, but I wanted you to know that you can have a combination of gardens. They've got some in-ground, they've got some bucket gardens, they've got a flower pot. So any combination can be used to grow your, to grow your garden or a community garden. These tall tomatoes are in a five gallon bucket and you'll notice that the flowers, will, which will turn in tomatoes, are uh, just barely coming on, but you already see several tomatoes. So by divine design, not all your tomatoes get ripe at once and one plant will usually grow tomatoes for a whole season if it's watered. Here again, this is part of our grocery garden project. I ask people to look at their grocery receipt and find the produce that they could grow that costs the most money. So if you can eliminate the highest cost produce, then you have more funds to use somewhere else. Most five gallon bucket beds do require a tomato cage for your tomatoes and sometimes even your larger bell peppers. These tomatoes were grown from seeds that from the previous year. 
Now, the thing about collecting seeds is you have to know where your plant came from. If you go to a grocery store and you buy a tomato and you save the seeds, you're not always guaranteed your tomato plant will give you fruit. You can grow a plant from that seed, but it may not have any tomatoes on it because it could have been GMO to take out the reproductive gene for the fruit. Okay, if it can hold water and drain, it can be a garden. This garden was built as an art project, but it just as well could have grown food. I know that in around my community, around Seminole Nation in the rural areas, we have a lot of cars on the property. And some of these cars could be turned into raised beds at the perfect height for gardening. You can't plant in the engine area because of contamination from car fluids, but you could cut the top off and use that area and cut the trunk lid off and use that area. This is what I call the to-go garden. This garden belongs to a member that lives in an apartment with no direct sunlight. So she takes her little garden that's growing herbs with her to work and she sets it outside to get sunlight during the day. In the evening, she takes it home with her and harvests herbs to be used with cooking. And this little drawer has about six plants in it and it's all she needs for a one person herb garden. This garden is what they have designed and used in Denmark. The boards across the bottom are 12 inches deep, and so there is 12 inches of dirt to grow these plants in. You can see the clear tube at the back is the water storage space. This can be pulled around to different areas. And to a smaller extent, we've used some of these kind of gardens in the bigger metropolitan areas, but to go to the schools. Not quite as wide as this because this takes a special permit to be moved. So it's just an idea that uh, we could use in some of our areas. This garden also has the capability to be pulled under protection, say in a garage or a bus barn, uh, if you need to keep out of the weather and to extend the growing season. All right, this is reusing a broken laundry basket lined with a black trash bag with holes in the bottom of the trash bag. You could fill this with dirt. Now, these strawberries, as you can see, aren't a foot apart. Strawberries necessarily don't take a foot to grow in, a foot of square dirt, but they'll grow in a much smaller area. You'll know when you start growing them, if they start crowding out each other and fighting for space, it'll reduce their productivity. This is probably the best one I've ever seen. This was taken in 2005 in downtown Denver. I saw this driving by and the guy parked and I got to speak with him and he said, how do you, how do, you do this? You, why are you doing this? And he said he lives in an apartment and he doesn't have any access to 
dirt to grow his own in the ground. And food's very expensive in Denver. And to water this, he drives to the car wash on the rinse cycle and waters it for a dollar. All right, that's the end of my presentation. And Marcia will be next. All right, thank you, thank you very much, Frida. And at this point, we're going to switch the presenters over. Let me make sure that I can do that. Um, Marcia? Yes, I'm here. Am I coming through okay? Yep, go ahead and give it a shot here. Okay, thank you, Mike. Um, hi, everyone. Good afternoon from Anchorage, Alaska here. Um, and from the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. We are also known as ANTHC. Uh, ANTHC is a nonprofit tribal health organization, and we are managed by the Alaska Native and American Indian people we serve, along with our tribal health organizations. We aim to provide the highest quality health services to all of Alaska's 227 federally recognized tribes around the state. We all work towards optimal health for our Alaska Native communities as a top priority and ANTHC provides healthcare that's holistic, innovative, and creative with a strong focus on prevention. I wanted to introduce myself and why I am interested in sustainable food systems and why I'm really excited to share with you today on this topic. And thanks for having me. Um, my name is Marcia Anderson, and I manage the health promotion program at ANTHC. And our program is part of the wellness and prevention services. And I also serve here as the Alaska Area IHS Health Promotion Disease Prevention Coordinator. Uh, my family background is from the Aleutic people of Kodiak, Alaska, shown in the south central coastal area of this map. And I grew up spending summers at our family fish camp in the Bristol Bay region of Alaska, which is shown here along the southwestern coast. And, you know, I was able to harvest a handful of food from both of these areas, learning from my parents. Uh, we spent a lot of time outdoors when I was growing up. And with a state as vast as ours is, with many, many different temperate zones, um, there's a real variety of plants throughout the state. And it makes our work so very interesting. And uh, I'm actually learning new things every day. I'm also a registered dietitian, and I really love to do any uh, love to do anything just having to do with human health, comprehensively and culturally, as a way to reduce risk of chronic disease. Like many places throughout the United States, there is a fast-growing movement and interest in sustainable food systems. So uh, let's talk about what is a sustainable food supply. It is where everyone has access to healthy foods that are nutrient dense. 
It is also access to cultural foods, whatever cultural you may come from, whatever culture you may come from. And if you harvest cultural foods, it also means access to the lands where you can harvest. It can also pertain to your choice in store-bought foods or whether you grow your own foods and can also include things like types of food preservation methods. A sustainable food supply means that there's a need for education around ethical harvesting, being good stewards of our land. The education can come from elders, from our conservationists, our ethnobotanists, our forestry and natural resource folks, and it includes being aware of federal and local guidelines for harvesting and managing forest products. It includes looking at access to public lands. It involves a need for increasing awareness around sustainable food systems and sharing this concept with others, young people, volunteers, so that they may join in the efforts for building sustainable food systems in our communities. It also means sharing what opportunities there are for careers in plant sciences and economics. Sustainable food supply is everything on this list and more to ensure we have healthy and affordable food options for our next generations, no matter where we live. We just heard Frida talk about food deserts. Um, and if we look at the definition of a food desert used by the USDA, focusing on two factors, uh, which is low income and low access, you know, much of rural Alaska has characteristics of a food desert. Traditional foods do remain a part of many Alaska Native people's diets, uh, can be blended with store-bought foods or a food supplement program here and there weaved throughout. But most food purchased in Alaska is shipped up from the lower 48 states. And the rural areas often then have to rely on foods to be barged or flown into the villages, which can be costly. Once the food arrives in the village, these costs of expensive travel is shown on store shelves. Uh, for example, a gallon of milk might be 10 to 12 dollars. Some villages may have a limited selection of foods on their shelves at any given time, and certainly fresh stuff can be damaged or in poor shape by the time it reaches the village. And some rural areas may not have a store at all or just a very small store. Some of these reasons here justify too why there is even more interest in sustainable food systems in our state, with, especially with the pandemic going on. How have we begun to address food security and food sustainability with our health promotion program? Um, we do work with tribal partners and communities throughout the state of Alaska to provide culturally relevant prevention and health education strategies. Some of our primary focuses are listed here, encouragement to be active, promotion of healthy nutrition practices, of harvesting and growing your own foods and plants, and program support for tobacco cessation. These are all focuses to help decrease the risk for development of chronic disease. And very importantly, the work we do as a support services comes from direct requests or inquiries of the tribal regions and our villages. We don't insert what we think the village or tribal region needs. It does come from within that region or community or from another program's request for our partnership and support. 
Our Alaska Native people, we do face many of the same chronic disease struggles as we all are familiar with. For example, according to the Alaska Native Health Status Report in 2019, cancer was the leading cause of death in Alaska, followed closely by heart disease. And nearly 70% of survey participants in this report were either overweight or obese. And this continues discussion then of how traditional plants may play an important role in preventative health. Means of harvesting and obtaining traditional foods is deeply rooted in the traditional values of our Alaska Native people. And preventative health for us is about engaging in your cultural values. Research has shown that engaging in cultural practices and traditional medicine, including the use of plants, can be helpful as a protective factor. When one participates in cultural practices, really no matter what culture that is, there is a strong sense of belonging and identity, which can provide strength and inner healing. Our elders here have told us, teach our young people about plants and do it, away, do it in a way that engages them in our cultural activities. Our elders have shared that if we don't use the plants, they'll go away. And it is important to help our youth understand the connection of land and people, to be good conservators and stewards of our land. Local and wild harvested foods can be more, more affordable. They can be easier to access than foods shipped in from urban areas. Um, the actual consumption of plants, the gathering of the plants, the processing of the plants, all come with a lot of added benefits to our Native people's health. They're good medicine. They connect us to our ancestral knowledge. They certainly get us moving, bringing us out uh, into the outdoors. They're wonderfully high in nutrients. Here are some examples. Our traditional berries are very high in fiber and antioxidants. Our greens, lots of good fiber, vitamins A and C in them. Our natural plants are oftentimes richer in vitamins and other nutrients than even some of our local grown plant foods, and they complement one another really well. I like this, the amazing amount of nutrition in rose hips and uh, thinking how warming, nourishing, and re-energizing a cup of wild rose hip tea is, especially in the cold winter months. Our natural seaweeds and kelp are an excellent source of minerals, like calcium and iron, along with A and B vitamins. And our root vegetables do provide us with complex carbohydrates that fill us up with good energy. And our trees provide us with food also from the leaves to the tips to the bark and sap. The benefits of adding fiber to the diet is well known in the fight against chronic disease. And uh, here lists some fiber content in some of our traditional wild plants. Here are two of our plants, 
harvested in spring for us, stinging nettle and fireweed shoots. Uh, stinging nettles really is such a superfood. It's very nutrient dense and you can do so much with it. Um, you can add it to soups and make pestos and it makes a really rich hot tea. And along with water, we do promote our traditional teas as healthy alternatives to drinking so many sugar sweetened beverages. In addition, to, uh, in addition to tasting great and providing these nutrients, our plants like uh, stinging nettle are immune boosters. They can help fight colds and reduce inflammation. Fireweed shoots are a really great treat brought to us in spring also. They are great eaten raw by themselves or added to fresh salad. Um, and they're really also very fun to pickle in your favorite vinegar. The maturing younger leaves of fireweed, especially prior to the flowers blooming, they're easy to harvest and dry and they too make a great addition to a salad. And these leaves make a wonderfully soothing and gentle tea. Here are a few tips for harvesting and consuming more traditional plants. Our elders really have such rich knowledge and we should continue learning from them and we should share whatever knowledge we have with kids and grandkids and schools wherever you can. Uh, Frida and I both earned a master gardener certificate in our states and this provides us with basic gardening and horticultural knowledge to be able to then give back to our communities via teaching and volunteering and helping on projects related to plants and gardening. We want to teach our kids early so they develop a taste for traditional foods. We want to learn new recipes, uh, combine them with healthy store-bought foods or supplement foods with our traditional foods. Learning to grow your own foods is really a terrific family activity. I've enjoyed that a lot. There are several innovative examples throughout our state of gardening and farming opportunities that are coming about. Uh, with climate changes, there's a lot of conversation around longer growing seasons in our future and what opportunities hold for growing food. We're pretty excited. We can't forget about all the wonderful physical benefits of harvesting plants too. Um, harvesting foods from what we call the store right outside your door engages us in movements that helps to keep our bodies strong and our minds busy. It provides us with healthy alternatives that can cut down on screen time, that can be part of a recovery process that aids in healing. A popular request we get from some regions are for these fun, bright berry and plant collection buckets to encourage families to get out more to berry pick for their favorite traditional berry or harvest plants for food and medicine. To provide an example of just how healing traditional plants can be in our lives, our worksite helped to implement a traditional garden at the Alaska Native Medical Center in partnership with our hospital food services. The garden is located in an outdoor courtyard next to the cafeteria. And the purpose of this garden is to increase and sustain traditional knowledge of Alaska Native plants. It connects patients and visitors and staff with an outdoor space that creates a feeling of home. It improves mental health and overall well-being for patients, visitors, and staff. 
Many people use this courtyard to eat meals in during the summer or just take a relaxing stroll as they recover and heal. Others can view the garden through the many windows that overlook the courtyard from the cafeteria hallways and patient floors. The garden consists of three Alaska biomes, which are tundra, bog, and birch forest. And each of these biomes does include traditional plants that can be found throughout Alaska. It looks like here we have some cranberry, currant, wormwood, and yarrow. They're all appropriate for food and medicine. Volunteers began working on the garden in the spring of 2018 in partnership with a university student who helped us to develop an implementation plan as part of his senior project. And it is important to include elders in all of our projects. Here we see Dr. Rita Blumenstein just enjoying the process of actually putting in the traditional garden at the hospital. Nice pictures of some currants ripening in the garden. Here again is wormwood, which is a widely used medicinal plant throughout the state. And this is a traditional tea or what we call Labrador tea or tundra tea. And this is a bog portion of our garden where we have many different types of berries. And you know, it's just really fun to sit in the courtyard and hear patients and staff talk about the plants. Um, you might hear kids say, oh, that's so cute. Um, I know that one. We picked that one at home. Or my gram makes ice cream out of that one. It's great. And the plants do inspire storytelling and sharing of knowledge. Staff members are grateful for having a peaceful space to take a mental health break from all the work they do for our hospital. Additionally, we want to expand the garden concept to provide more education to patients and staff about our traditional native plants and the uses of them. Uh, the garden is open from April through September. And on any given day, up to 50 people may walk through the space or stop to eat their meal, which means we can estimate a big impact from this garden in that 8,000 people may visit the courtyard in that time frame over the spring, summer, and fall. Our educational expansion would include developing and purchasing educational signage, decorative fencing, and adding some new plants. Our program supports regional plant symposiums, and we offer mini grants and in-person support for regions that want to facilitate a gathering for their people to come together to attend a local Alaska Plants as Food and Medicine Symposium. Uh, these symposiums are held <clears throat> for the region's people by the region's people. The symposiums uh, promote traditional plant knowledge and ethical harvesting, which is important because there are unfortunately increasing gaps in the knowledge, practice, and skills related to our Alaska plants. And these symposiums can help keep knowledge alive. 
Our elders revealed through focus groups that we do good with our traditional meets and passing that information and skill along, but we often don't share enough about our traditional plants. And we need to ensure that this knowledge gets passed along to our younger generations. This sharing of knowledge and hands-on activities around plants that happens in these various regions in these symposiums helps to sustain our valuable natural and traditional food systems. We would like to expand these mini grants in the near future to include home, community, and our school gardens. One of our program themes is hunt, fish, gather, grow. And we would like to expand the grow section also. Um, I'm really excited to hear what Frida is sharing today as she is an amazing and rich resource with all of her experience. And we're grateful to be learning from her, her too. So thank you so much, Frida. Another way our program supports sustainable food systems knowledge is through teaching a college class on Alaska Native plants and traditional uses at the Alaska Pacific University. This class is offered as an outdoor studies or personal growth credit. And this was our second year teaching this class. And we are very happy to report that not only did our student numbers increase during the second year, but the number of Alaska Native students in attendance also increased. And of course, we always have elder mentors in the class who just get as excited and involved as the students when it comes to the various activities in the class. And there's so much more good news in terms of plants being good for our health. There's a lot of research out there that supports being in nature gardening and spending time with plants all can reduce risk for chronic disease. Chronic disease is the leading cause of death in the US and having these chronic conditions can negatively impact people's daily living activities and just quality of life in general. One study concluded that plant gardening made people feel just as good as they did when they were out biking or walking and that it increased their emotional well-being. Research also, researchers um, also found out that vegetable gardening and growing your own food actually increased emotional well-being beyond what general plant gardening did. Another research article reviewed a variety of nature-based activities for elderly people and the elder participants shared that they really liked interacting with nature because they felt it supports their physical, their psychological, and spiritual needs. And green spaces provide benefits to our young population as well. Children who have access to green spaces had better memory, better attention, self-discipline, improved behavior, and they were able to moderate their own stress better in the research. Additionally, green space time for children helped regulate symptoms of ADHD as well as improve test scores. Spending time growing plants, harvesting plants, interacting with nature has been shown to improve how we feel mentally, emotionally, spiritually, socially. And the takeaway that gardening is beneficial for public health. 
this is a great incentive to teach our communities about gardening and how it can help you stay healthy and reduce risk for chronic disease. So why do we need gardening and harvesting champions? In Alaska, there are changes in the consumption of traditional foods diet across the state. And in some areas, there may be a decline. Some of the reasons that we have our people might not be taught as often how to harvest. We may be losing our elders and knowledge gets lost. Uh, many can't afford gas or fuel to hunt or gather. And it can be uh, an increased dependence on food from the local store. And people may actually be leaving villages for healthcare reasons or to seek employment opportunity. Many have less time to harvest if both parents may need to work. And up here, rivers and lakes don't seem to be freezing up as fast or sometimes as much with climate change and harvesting seasons are being delayed or shortened at times. Environmental toxins and pollutants can be of concern to some people and may deter harvesting. Federal or state guidelines, they can be often hard to fully know or understand and they may limit the availability of some of our traditional foods or limit the times we're able to harvest. What are solutions we could start to work towards or implement as a community or state? Um, we can be motivational for others around us to harvest, garden, and spend time with plants. We can learn what's happening in our world today about climate change. And a couple of recommend, recommendations that come straight from our Alaska Food Policy Council, um, build capacity and infrastructure in agriculture and low in our local food productions. Use interns or practicum students. Vista volunteers. And enhance your own education around plants so that you can be a champion in your area or support champions more comprehensively. Many of our tribal programs, our universities, your own local botanical gardens, your own nature centers, cooperative extensions, they all have a variety of educational opportunities out there to enhance your skill and knowledge. And in summary, uh, we wanna continue to learn about and maintain traditional ways of hunting and gathering um, to promote physical activity through harvesting and gardening. Uh, planting your own fruit, vegetables, and herbs uh, gives you and your family uh, healthier and more natural options for delicious snacks and meals. All these solutions encourage a sense of community and self-growth and self-awareness. They promote cultural traditions, enhance education, certainly gives opportunities to include elders and youth and get people moving. These are all great benefits to support prevention of chronic disease. So maybe we can all get working together. Uh, Frida and I plan to partner a bit more and inspire our families and communities to engage in our wonderful food systems to sustain them all for our health and, and health of future generations. It was really nice uh, to be here today and some of these are new concepts to many of us and I'm looking forward to learning more in future endeavors. And there are resources on the next 
slides here. And we do have some time for discussion and feel free to ask questions to Frida and I. And also we would like it if you would share that if you might have or have heard of some projects or solutions that do enhance and support sustainable food systems, if you would share those too with us in the box. Um, thank you so much. All right, thank you, Marcia. And yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to type them into the question box in the lower right hand corner of the screen. And if uh, you have anything to add, any comments or any uh, information you'd like to share um, on uh, uh, the project that you've been working on that um, folks may be interested to check out, feel free to uh, include that as well. <clears throat> Um, we do have a few minutes here at the end of the presentation for questions and answers. So uh, let me go ahead and get that opened up here. Also, um, if you have any, uh, if, if you'd like, go ahead and check out our website at keepitsacred.org. And our social media is listed on the screen as well. Let me see here. Uh, somebody was asking if the slides will be available later. Yes, it will be available at our website, keepitsacred.org. Um, if you click on the left-hand uh, side of the screen where the menu is, uh, click on resources, click on the webinar archive tab. Uh, we'll have the webinar archive within the next 24 hours up on the website. Uh, this person says, uh, thank you for recommending partnership with Cooperative Extension. Um, this person asks, um, how do you fund the community gardens? My, many community gardens are started with a grant. And Places like Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart and even some um, private stores offer up small grants to get started. And many communities will offer the space, the actual ground. You just have to network and find out what's available to you in your individual areas. Awesome. Um, let me see here. This one says wonderful presentation. Uh, we help support local gardening through the, uh, excuse me if I uh, mispronounce this, Klokwan Community Garden in Southeast Alaska. This person says uh, the South Central Foundation Health Education Department does an annual Get Your Garden Growing project, offering seeds, peat pods, and growing tips to our community. It's been a very popular event, and we use diabetes education funds from our grant to do this. Uh, this person asks, uh, what plants are the easiest to begin with that you could that you could suggest? Easiest for growing and sustainment. Thank you for the presentation. 
depending on your space, I would say the easiest thing to grow is a green beans, but they do like to climb. Another easy thing to grow is squash. It'll practically grow anywhere, but the runners do like to run across your yard. To keep them out of the grass, you can place newspaper held down by rocks underneath the vine, and that'll keep the grass out of the squash plant, and it will just go dormant. The grass will regrow back after you harvest your plant and take away the vine. Tomatoes are easy to grow, but they do need a little cage, and they do need five hours of sun a day. And the more tomatoes that are on the plant, the more water it requires. That's great. Thank you, Frida. To view the full webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Thank you for listening to this Webinar Archive presentation from the National Native Network. Okay, no.